0: Welcome back to Career Corner, where our goal is to help you be the CEO of your career. I'm your host, Jonathan Mars, and we've got a special guest for you in this episode. Ben Polidor is the head of risk and execution at Adam Investors. Prior to that, he was a software engineer at TriTech Solutions and the head of algorithmic trading and the managing director at ITG. Ben lives in Austin, Texas with his wife and two young girls. In this conversation, we discuss persevering through rejection, why procrastination isn't as bad as you think, how to advocate for higher compensation in a way that helps you and your manager, why it's actually easy to stand out, why the future is bright because of millennials, those early days of dial-up internet in the 90s, and his amazing philosophical number one career takeaway at the end, where we also dabble a bit in the circle of life. I hope you enjoy, and without further ado, Ben Polydor. Ben Polydor. Welcome to Career Corner. It's great to have you, man. Hey,
1: thank you for having me. I'm glad we finally got together.
0: Yeah, so you're in Austin, Texas, and I just want to see how are things going there. We're talking in about mid-January 2021, which is basically the director's cut of 2020 so far.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is just the extended uh, 2020. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Austin is uh, it's not a bad place to uh, live through pandemic i suppose um get some warm weather you know i drive everywhere that i need to go but uh it would certainly be better if there was no pandemic <laughs> it's, so but yeah it's good i mean uh, i'm certainly glad that i moved away from new york uh for this thing you know i miss new york um but i did not miss new york in 2020 i can tell you that
0: we'll jump around a little bit but uh You've had a really cool career and I actually just want to jump into a time when you were at a company called ITG, which you were there for, I was checking this out on LinkedIn, you were there for 12 years. I forgot you were there that long. And I, I, I want to start with the promotion story and then we can sort of like talk about what you did there and then take a step back. But I thought it was a really indicative story of you. So if you could just set the stage for us. And then sort of build up to that story I'm referencing. I I think it'd be really cool. Yeah.
1: It's funny. Like, I guess I thought of it as a promotion, but it ended up not, it ended up being kind of a a lateral move, but into the business I wanted to be in. So I, I was, I came over to ITG in, uh, Oh six as a developer and, uh, algorithmic trading, um, building, you know, uh, sell side trading algo's, um, you know, I was like a systems programmer and, uh, you know, I was there for about two years and, uh, there was somebody quit on the product management team, which is sort of doing like research and selling the algos more than, you know, than building the technology. And I was like, I want to do that. So I went to the head of the business, <laughs> and I just told him I wanted the job and he was like, no, you know, you, you don't really have the right experience, the right education uh, you know, you're a great developer, like it doesn't really make sense. So, you know, I took that and, uh, kind of, I was a little bit annoyed with him and, you know, I was pretty, you know, self-righteous kind of young guy back then, but I did just kind of take it and think about it. And I was like, oh, he's pretty much right. So I, um, you know, I, I started to, to learn more about, you know, the sort of business side of trading and finance. I, um, started the, uh, CFA program, Chartered financial analyst program, which is honestly not really the best way to learn about this stuff, but it was like one of the things you could do that was like kind of fairly prestigious and you could do it yourself. You didn't need to like go to college and, you know, I didn't really want to get a graduate degree. So, but I I came back a year later and, you know, there was another opening and I was like, I want this one. And this time (laughs) you let me do it. Um, but you know, at that time I had been running, I had a team, like I was like kind of like a middle manager on the development team. And then he was like, you know, you're, you're not going to manage anybody. You're just going to be a guy on this team and you're going to go down a rank or whatever. But I was like, okay, fine. I mean, you know, at the time I was young and I, this is closer to what I wanted to do. So, so yeah, I was, I, I don't know, I guess, I guess I would call that patient, you know, like I could have just got mad and quit and gone somewhere else. Um, but, uh, instead I kind of I kind of took the feedback seriously. Like I really wasn't. Even when I got the job, to be honest, I wasn't really ready to have it. <laughs> you know, like it took a couple of years before I actually got good at that, that side of the business. Right. I very much leaned on my technology background, but, but yeah. I mean, I think you know that's for for anybody who's sort of uh, starting out young. You kind of have to build your own career, right? Like I don't think he would have ever offered me this position. You know, I think uh, he would have said, "Hey." You know this guy's a good developer he's doing what i need him to do he's building the technology that i need i don't really want to have a problem right he had to like replace me like i, I made a problem for him right <laughs> point where he valued me enough that he he felt it was worth it to deal with that problem to give me what i wanted
0: okay so i want to unpack a couple things there itg you're talking about the algorithmic trading is that the same thing that people might know as high frequency trading or the kind of it's it's
1: sort of the other side. So high frequency trading. uh, I think what most people mean by that is electronic market making, you know, Virtu is the the biggest firm in that um, today, Citadel Securities, people like that. So I, uh, we were, I was on the sell side. So I was basically building algorithms um, that were in a way meant to sort of defend, you know, uh, buy side traders information against that. Um, that's, that's, you know, I think that maybe that it's, it's a bit prosaic. I'm not sure if it's really like a battle, right? I think that these things work together, but but yeah, I mean, I was on the sell side, so I was helping people who wanted to buy, you know, a million shares of, of some stock. Uh, our algorithms would try to hide their intent and find liquidity over, you know, a period of time without sort of, uh, leaking information and and causing the price to go up before they filled the order. Right. So, you know, why do, why do people like to say, why did, why did the market go up today? There are more buyers than sellers. Right. Well, (laughs) so, you know, I was trying to get, get my buyers done without actually moving the market. Right. And that's, that's the kind of products that we made. And this is something that happens at like every bank. Um, I was at a smaller firm that was sort of independent, but, um, you know, it's a fairly big business, electronic trading for the buy side almost all of it is done algorithmically now. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I started it when algorithmic trading was fairly new, honestly, like, um, back when I started, uh, some large banks like JP Morgan, didn't even really have algorithmic trading, right. Everything was sort of high touch and phone trading and things like that. Um, so I saw like sort of the whole
0: industry, uh, evolve over the last, uh, I guess 15 years. Right. So how, you were there for 12 years and what year in, to add the ITG career arc were you at this point in the story? How long, yeah, so, how many years have you been there?
1: Yeah, so I was there, um, you know, really I was a developer for about two or three years. And then, you know, I transitioned to the product side uh, around uh, 2010. And I was there for, you know, eight more years after that. So most of my career was spent, you know, on the product side. And eventually I was the head of that that algorithm training business for the last
0: few years that I was there. Mm -hmm. And your, your boss at that time when you asked for the job and he said you weren't ready, it sounds like you knew that that was a reasonable statement to make, but did he know that he or she know that you sort of went back and put in all this work to learn things so that when you came back a year later for another opportunity, he either knew that you had been working hard or knew or notice the growth that you had had in some of these? I
1: would definitely say it's the latter. Right. I guess, you know, when I think of it as a story that's so long ago, it's like, Oh, I went away for a year and I I went to the, you know, to the, the temple at the top of the mountain and learned. No, I mean, really what I did is I just tried to get involved with that side of the business more. Right. I tried to like give feedback on the way the product worked instead of just building it. I tried to, um, you know, get myself into client meetings. So, yeah, I mean, I also tried to, to learn things, but I think honestly, that was probably less important. Like just, just, you know, going and learning about finance was probably less important than just practically becoming, you know, it's like, you, you just kind of want to like start, okay, I don't have that role, but I'm going to start acting like I do. Right. Like <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to give feedback and say, Hey, I don't think this works the right way or, um, you know, try to go to client meetings, things like that. Now, that could be really annoying if you're bad, right? There's some risk there. Um, and, you know, maybe I was, maybe I was a little bit uh, precocious um, <laughs> as I did this, but, but I think, you know, that's, uh, yeah. And so by the time I asked him again, it was kind of obvious, right? Like I had, I had spent time, like acting as if I had the role while still, you know, meeting my obligations as a developer. And, uh, you know, he must have liked what I was doing or at least thought it was reasonable because he, he gave me the opportunity.
0: So, you moved to Austin. How many years ago from? Rumsfeld? Yeah,
1: uh, so 2018 is when I quit uh, ITG, and uh, you know, I had so I had a few months uh, garden leave between. So I started here at uh, my current position in uh, I think it was around May of 2018. So it's it's been uh, almost three years, right? Um, since I left. It's been, you know, it's been a very different job <laughs> than what I did before. So
0: it, so, so one quick question for those who might not know, what does garden leave mean?
1: Yeah. So uh, it's a silly thing. Like, uh, you know, you have this, um, non-compete agreements in your contract and it's really amazing. They basically pay you to not work for three months. So I got paid to, you know, literally just not work for three months. Um, and, uh, Yeah, you know, it it went by really quick. I had young kids, so you know, like what would I have what would I have done if I, you know, was just a single guy with no responsibility, right? I probably would have like sailed around the world or something, but at the time I just you know, it was actually kind of nice. I got to spend some time with my family, get ready to move them across the country. That was the other thing, right? So so it wasn't the kind of garden leave that you dream about where you have like tons of time to, to really indulge yourself. But, uh, but it really helped because yeah, moving my family from New York, uh, I have two daughters. Uh, so my wife and I moving them from New York to Texas where we have nothing, no connections, no, nothing was, was, you know, that's a three month project in itself. But, uh, but yeah, I highly recommend garden leave. Uh, if you can get someone to do that for you, it's great. Uh, <laughs> Sounds
0: great. I haven't had a garden. leave myself. I have to work on that. So, okay. So you're living in New Jersey at this point and this is, you know, around 2018, right? Give or take. And you're commuting in to New York City from New Jersey. You're at this company, ITG, for a long time where, where you had some success and we can come back to that. You're now in Austin, Texas. What prompted the move to Austin and what are you doing now?
1: Yeah. So I work at hedge fund now. Um, and uh, it's a startup hedge fund that, you know, when I came to Austin had zero assets. So it was definitely a risky move, but, um, but I had been wanting to move to a hedge fund for a while. And, um, you know, coming from the sell side, I felt like it would be kind of fun to start a hedge fund instead of just joining like a because you know, I had like a big team, I had like twenty people working for me. Like, I had this this large organization, um, and I came to a hedge fund where you know I had nobody, no direct reports. I did, you know, I was back to programming every day, uh, doing research myself. So, so it was a, it was a big sort of um, I don't want to call it a culture shock. It was actually in a relief in some ways. You know, like I enjoyed managing people and building teams, but I had gotten kind of sick of it Been doing it for a long time, and it felt kind of rope and uh yeah so i was you know back into a to a sort of more entrepreneurial hands on role and i was on the buy side so you know, just to be clear like buy side you know we manage money for our investors now i you know itg i'm like a customer of itg now actually so um you know i use itg Well, they are now they got bought by vertu but i use you know companies like that uh are sort of my vendors that i use in, in my current role um so i kind of went to the other side of the business but yeah i mean i think one of the cool things about doing a hedge fund startup is that you really learn everything about how the buy side works and having not worked in the buy side before i felt like this was a great way for me to like really get a depth and breadth of understanding of this business that you know if i just went to some big hedge fund you might not learn as much that way right so um So yeah, that's, that certainly happened. Like the prediction was correct. Um, (laughs) this has been a huge learning experience and, uh, um, but it's, it's quite fun. Like I, you know, I hope I can stay on the buy side for the rest of my career. Why is that? Yeah. Um, I just think it's like the most scalable work you can do to work at a hedge fund. Um, what I mean by that is like one person can, can move the needle so much, um, By coming up with a strategy or, you know, finding a way to, to reduce some kind of transaction cost or something like that. You know, if you, if you're managing, um, like if you're one of the really huge hedge funds that has like 20 or $30 billion, right. And you can, you can reduce costs by like, you know, uh, a hundredth of a percent per month, right. Which is called a, a basis point. You know, that's tens of millions of dollars. That you, you, know, so you just make these tiny improvements, and you make these huge returns. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, the, the other the downside is it's a much more volatile business, right? Like, um, you know, if you work at a bank or something, like every year, I mean, you know, things kind of move around a, a, a very. Um, predictable sort of growth path right and uh the buy side is like you have an amazing year and you have a shitty year right it's (laughs) it's it's a bit different i mean it's not always that way but it's it's definitely a more volatile more risky thing to do than to work at a bank um but uh i really enjoy it i think as someone who can build software and do research myself like i can i can come up with an idea and build it and put it into competition with other people um in a way that is hard in a lot of other
0: businesses. One person can really make a difference in a hedge fund. So. Got it. And you are the head of execution there.
1: Yes, right? uh, actually mean? now I'm the head of risk and execution. So yeah, uh, so I'm in charge of trading, and um, and you know as the head of risk, I'm in charge of sort of uh, portfolio construction and um, you know managing the uh, the risk of the portfolio, which is something I just
0: picked up this year. Got it. So there's a couple of things I want to come back to, but I think we should introduce how we know each other into the conversation. You yeah, yeah. Intentionally, <laughs> intentionally waited a little bit for that. You're Go probably ahead. one of the people I literally have known the longest in my life. Do you want to sort of talk about how we know each other and, and use that as a way to sort of talk about your childhood? And then, you yeah, know, sure. Older, I like, mean, yeah. We've been friends. Uh, honestly, I
1: I can barely remember a time when we weren't friends. So I think, I think we, we met when, uh, in Johnstown when I was like riding my bike around the block and I just ran into you and we were like, Hey, let's ride our bikes together or something like that. That's the story I remember. It's probably, probably not true. I don't know. So long ago, (laughs) but, uh, at the time, um, Yeah, we lived uh, just a couple blocks away. I think you had just moved to town in like second grade or something like that. You know, we met over the summer, I think. And uh, yeah, we became fast friends. And um, I think uh, we basically were best friends pretty much from then (laughs) until basically now. whatever. So that was probably, uh, whatever, we were probably six, seven, eight, something like that. So thirty years around of friendship—that's uh, that's something else. I didn't realize it'd been that long.
0: I know it's it's definitely second grade. So whatever that is, seven, eight, and and just to further contextualize, yeah, Ben and I uh, and a couple of buddies. Actually, there's I don't know if we still include Berg because he doesn't pop up as much anymore. I know. So, <laughs> it's about there's about five of us. Uh, us two and Ben and. Uh, Tim and Jeff and this guy we call uh, and Hammer and Berg and so most of us still talk every day and it's it's great and so we grew up as Ben said in a t- small town called Johnstown, New York not to be confused with Johnstown, Pennsylvania so legit upstate New York southern tip of the Adirondacks about an hour I should have let you describe it because I always describe it this way so I'd be interested <laughs> like, an hour man. west of Albany uh, is
1: the middle of nowhere i know i mean uh it's uh it's funny like i think it, it worked for me growing up but uh, uh i don't know i mean i don't know if it would have if it worked for everybody <laughs> it seems like it seems like a place that time is kind of forgotten um but uh i yeah I, I had a great time i had a great childhood there just living this sort of small town uh free range lifestyle like you know we used to and the fact that we met on bikes, like my parents would just let me go out in second grade and ride my bike around the neighborhood for hours. Like, I, can't, I don't know. I live in a bigger city now, but like my kids can't
0: ride their bikes out of the house for two hours in second grade. You know? <laughs> no yeah. Way. I mean, I don't even so, think it was two hours. It was like eight o'clock to five o'clock. Yeah. It was
1: like be home before sunset. Um, so. Yeah, it was a different life back then. But, you know, part of it is that you're in a small town and it feels safe. But, yeah, uh, I think uh, it was definitely humble humble beginnings. Um, I think part of, honestly, part of what's made my, you know, just to tie it into careers briefly, is part of what's made my career work is just, you know, just coming from, uh, you know, sort of a blue-collar background, having some technical skill, and it's it's made so many things easier in a way, right? Like my, I already feel like I'm playing, like, I felt like I was playing with house money after I got my first job in New York. <laughs> I was like, these people are going to pay me what to, you know, it was like a start. It was like a starting salary kind of job, but it was, just you know, it was like more money than my parents made and I was 22, you know? So, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So I felt like I was playing with house money from the time I was 22 and it gave me a certain level of kind of aggressiveness. And, uh, you know, it's, it's it's like an entourage. I always used to say, if this doesn't work out, we'll all go back to Queens. Right. So right, Right. (laughs) I just felt that way. But I also felt like, you know, I had to, I had to work harder in some ways because, you know, I didn't have any sort of connections or anything like that coming out of college. Right. I was just a guy who could program.
0: Our parents still live there. I'm pretty sure they hung out last weekend and, yeah, I agree. It's It was a great place to grow up. It's definitely different now, or maybe I'm just older. Yeah, I de- we definitely weren't handed anything, that's for sure. Growing up, though, we did a lot of stuff, but one thing that you were always really good at and interested in was, I mean, back then we used to call computers, which is just... I feel like that's <laughs> computers, yeah. Saying that. And... Uh, your dad had a cute nickname for you, which I won't, which I won't divulge if you don't want me to. But it's uh, Professor uh, Head. Yeah, Professor <laughs> Head. So Ben was known as Professor Head because he always, always he could fix any problem with a computer. But try talk about how you got interested in, in that. You know, and this is like the '90s, so yeah, things like Firefly were out. And,
1: yeah, you know, honestly, was- I don't even
0: remember like how
1: I got interested in computers, but I just remember. Um, I've always been sort of like a hobbyist, you know, I like to find things to, to do that are, um, that are like that you can do by yourself with your hands. You know, I I got into woodworking and when I, when I got older, but like, so for me it was just like, you mean you can program computers? Like I just, the idea of it just was so cool to me. So, you know, I, I saved up my money and I got a, uh, we had a Tandy, 2000, I think that was our first computer, <laughs> and, um, you know, we used to play like video games on five and a quarter inch floppy disks. That was pretty sweet. And then, you know, I saved up some money and I bought my first like, you know, uh, like windows 3.1 computer. And it was, uh, you know, I had a 486. It was, it was a screamer uh, back then. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I um, I bought a, a giant book on Java when it first came out, um, you know, this was probably in the nineties or something like that. Still and,
0: thing to know these days.
1: Yeah. I haven't used Java very much in my career. It's funny, but that was the first language I really learned and I learned it by buying a book because I didn't have the internet. So I was, <laughs> I was like, I bought like, you know, you, it came with like a CD that had like the, the Java development kit on it. And I was like, trying to like learn how to program with like notepad and, uh, I, uh, you know, I didn't, honestly, I didn't get that far with it when I first started. Cause you just had like so much easier to learn how to be a developer now. Like there's so many resources, but with no internet and just a bookstore, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it was certainly a challenge, but yeah, I think I, my first thing that I made was like a, it was like a blackjack game, barely worked, <laughs> in Java. But, uh, but I was really interested in computers. I, um, you know, it's funny, like I probably should have done some kind of startup. Like I, I was like mining Bitcoin in the, you know, when it first came out and then I like decided I was bored with it and I sold all my Bitcoins for $30. So (laughs) that kind of guy, like I like, I like new technology. I'm always interested in like the newest stuff. Um, If anything, one of my, my faults is that I'll, I'll kind of, you know, get tired of the newest shiny toy and move on to the next one before i build like you know i'm not I'm not the kind of guy who goes bitcoin let's build a business like that's not really for me um i'm like bitcoin neat let me learn all about it and then move on
0: yeah is that what you did with my parents printer back in the day when you like took it apart and then <laughs> <just> <laughs> i don't <laughs> even remember that but probably even put back <laughs> together right i guess so you you had so that that's your interest and then you go to college at, at wpi otherwise known as worcester Polytech Institute, right? Yeah. And and you studied, uh, computer science. Why did you go to WPI? And it, I mean, it seems intuitive why you chose computer science, but yeah. So uh, back then,
1: um, you know, I lived in upstate New York. And so I, I applied to, I mean, I got into WPI and union college and RPI. And honestly, like, I don't know why to go to WPI. I think, uh, a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I liked their program. It was very unique. Um, it had it had a real focus on um, like going out and working with companies, so you had to do these two like um, co-op projects. Uh, one of them I worked for Deutsche Bank, and the other one I worked in Australia for like the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organization, which is like you know the National Science Foundation in the U.S. Um, and it was like opportunities like that that made me want to go to WPI. I just felt it was like kind of a a, a progressive. Uh, learning environment that seemed more, I mean, to be honest, like from the minute I stepped into college, I was like, okay, when do I get to start working and making money? Like, I just, you know, like I enjoyed the college experience, but you know, I'm certainly, I wouldn't call myself an academic. Like I really wanted to be a, a you know, a practitioner and get going. I was impatient to get going. And I think part of what I liked with WPI is that they would kind of let you, let you do that. Right. Um, before you graduated, you, there was, you had an opportunity to work,
0: Yeah. I always found their quarterly system to be very annoying because it didn't line up with the bi-semester.
1: Yeah. We didn't have the same breaks, uh, but yeah, they had quarters. So instead of taking like five classes for a semester, you would take like three classes for a quarter. And it was, um, it was a very different program. Um, but uh, I really liked it. I felt like, uh, the quality of the computer science education was really high and, um, you know, they, they made you pretty well-rounded. Like I took a, I wrote a play, <laughs> like a, like a hundred page play. Cause you had to, um, you had to do some kind of humanities thing. Uh, mm-hmm. cause they were like, these nerds need to do something, you know, to humanize themselves. And so I, I was like, all right, I'll do drama. And I ended up writing a play as my capstone humanities project there. So yeah, WB is a cool place. Um, not a lot of people have heard of it outside of like new England. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I thought it was a great school.
0: Yeah. I mean, I went to a couple of good parties there. Is there, <laughs> is there anything else noteworthy up until this point? Did you have any mentors or anyone that heavily influenced or things you think about today that happened back then that helped shape you?
1: Um, you know, I think the, the only thing I would say from growing up is that I was lucky enough in a small town that is, you know, not very well off that I had a, a group of friends who were pretty, um, smart and, and, you know, uh, just good kids, you know, um, yourself and a few of the other guys that we mentioned that a, like I didn't get into a lot of trouble and B, um, it was far, fairly competitive academically. Like, you know, we'd like, Oh, I got a 96 in physics or whatever. And like, <laughs> I think, I think that worked for me. Right. Cause, uh, it kept me, you know, I, I like having some kind of competition. Like I, I really don't like to exercise, for example, unless I can like play a sport or something. Right. So it's kind of the same way with uh, education and even in my career, like, you know, I've chosen to work in a hedge fund, right. You're just every day. You're just the most competitive thing you can imagine. So, <laughs> so I think uh, having that, that group of friends really helped. Like if I had a different group of friends growing up, I think um, I, I would have had a totally, probably a totally different outcome. Right.
0: Uh, so, I, I do I do think about that a lot actually. Uh, so you have two two girls. How old are they now? They're um, second and third grade. So um, uh,
1: Violet is uh, nine, and my younger daughter is seven. She'll be eight in a few
0: weeks. Got it. And I've got a daughter and a son a little younger than that. But I, I we did have such a good group of friends, and we had good great parents, of course, too. But yeah, I always wonder. It, it does seem like. Yeah. If we hung out with some deadbeats, I don't, you know, yeah. What, would, would things have gone? Nah. There's plenty of
1: opp- opportunity for that in upstate New York. So, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, I, I think we're lucky in, in in many ways to have the group of friends that we did. Um, but, uh, but who knows? Right. I mean, you know, maybe that would have done even better with different, I don't know. Like I wonder like how much this kind of gets into like nurtured nature. But, like, I just wonder how much control you have over anything like, yeah does did any of these things matter? Or was I just kind of like a bright kid and I was going to be fine. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how it works really. You know, I think about that a lot. Like how much control do you have over your own success? Really? You know, create a narrative about it, but it's hard to know for sure.
0: Right. Uh, I'm a little surprised you didn't bring up the influence superior Nat had on your career. Oh yeah. Like, or is it on your LinkedIn? Which by the way,
1: it's on my great. LinkedIn. It's VeriNet. They renamed it. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Not so, nearly as yeah. catchy. I had I had the very uh, I was really lucky. Like when I was in high school, I had a summer job where I did internet tech support. And uh, first of all, as a high school kid, you made pretty good money. And I sat in an office at a computer all day, which is great. And um, but you know, I had to deal with the public back with dial-up internet and dial-up <laughs> internet is not a reliable service. I don't know if any of you listeners have had it, but it doesn't work very well. And people don't know any imagine just imagine explaining to people how to connect to dial up. Like they have to put in a phone number. They have to like turn off call waiting. There's so many ways that can break. And like, these are people in a rural area too. Like the quality of their phone connections is very poor and they'd be calling me and saying, we keep getting disconnected. So, <laughs> so I mean, funny. yeah, I was people would ask to... me, like, should I use capital numbers? I mean, you really had to deal. You had to suffer fools with computers, but you know, it's not their fault. I mean, this the technology was just so bad, right? And like, these are just like hardworking like plumbers, and they're like, all right, let me let me get on the dial-up internet,
0: <laughs> and
1: they just couldn't do it.
0: Well, yeah, so... you like got a CD in the mail. Uh, yeah, I, I was gonna try to hold it together, but I just can't. The story's so funny. Like, the people used to call you and be like. What's going on down there?
1: (laughs) Yeah. People just would think that everything was broken and it was really just, just dial up internet It doesn't work very well. That was the answer. This product is a bad bad product. Just Just hang in there. You know, you were rich back then. If you had a second phone line just for the internet, right? Like, you know, when I would get on the internet, it would block the phone to our house. No one could call, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, we had, I had a couple friends, um, that were so rich. They had a second phone line, you know, which back then was like 30, another 30 bucks a month. And they just used it for the internet. Those people had it made, man. They could be on the internet all day. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, it was, stuff, internet it was, uh, <laughs> it was something else. And yeah, it was just a plague upon the rural population.
0: <laughs> so, uh, Okay. So you graduate with a degree in computer science and we both sort of winded our way down the Hudson river to New York city. Uh, what brought you there and what was your first gig out of college?
1: Yeah. Uh, I was a developer, at, like a software consulting firm. It was kind of like, um, like an Accenture kind of place. And uh, what we would do is we would go into companies, figure out what, the people did there try to automate what they did so that they could fire them. That was the job. Um, (laughs) it was not very rewarding. I mean, in a way it was fun because you got to like, you know, I worked at weird places like Con Ed and I'd get to like walk around their facilities and see like weird pipeline projects that I have to like help them, uh, make permits and tickets and all these like weird bureaucratic processes that we try to automate. Um, but to me, it was just a way to get into New York, get a job, you know, I can get some experience as a developer. Um, so I was only there for a couple of years, but, and then I got my job at ITG. Um, but yeah, I was, it was, it was a startup too. So it was kind of, you know, they did something like Accenture, but you know, it was a startup like helped, I helped like build the network in the office. <laughs> like I, I ran the like ethernet cable to all the desks and we built our office. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of, my career's kind of been like a cycle, right? Like I started as a startup and then I went to like a, you know, publicly listed corporation, very formal hierarchies. And then now I'm back at a startup and uh, we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. It's a really good lesson that you've picked up where you reference it as a sort of, you know, it's good to have a cycle in your career where you're, like you said, you're hands-on then you're a senior manager. Uh, why do you think that's important?
1: it's just sort of been the way that it's worked out for me, but I, I, think, um, I would recommend it because I think, um, you can get stale and you can kind of, um, you know, as a hands-on person, I think you can kind of forget the real power and value of, of management, um, and, and, you know, and mentoring and building teams and, and helping people grow their careers. And, and that's very rewarding. Um, but as a um you know as a as a manager i think uh it it you know you can get so far away from the products you're building um that you know i think it can it can diminish your ability to to make a difference you know like at some point you get to become so senior that you can never turn back you know like if you become like tim cook or something like you know his time is worth more than anybody's this doesn't make sense for him to go like write a program or something but um but you know i think at this point in my career um like i never want to be like a tim cook right like i don't know i like making things i like getting my hands dirty um i can't imagine just being like in the rarefied air of like a large company CEO or something like that. Right. Like I'm, I'm at heart a technologist and uh, you know, I can, I can do management if I, if I um, if it's the right thing for the company that I'm at at the time. Um, But I really just like to make things that's, you know, so the cycle for me, maybe, is it a cycle or is it maybe just keep boomeranging back to what I like? I don't know for sure. You know,
0: well, do you think this is something you you've, you've sorta of noticed the theme and then understood how rewarding it was, or did you at what point did you maybe try to do that? Yeah,
1: I, I definitely think I wanted to um when I left ITG, I was definitely looking for jobs that were more hands-on. You know, like I had just I had such a big organization that I was just I mean, it was like I never got a chance to do any like research, any development myself. And my time was just wasn't it wasn't what they were paying me for, right? They were paying me to manage this big organization and keep everybody going and you know, prioritize and and come up with strategies and competitive analysis and all that kind of stuff and sell. That's a big part of my career was selling. Um and it was great. I mean it was really rewarding. I got to see the world, things like that. But um but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's it is really nice to just sit there and like solve a problem with Python for four hours. Right. And I never really got to do that. So, so I was looking for something more hands on. And I think that's where my industry at least is going. Like they want to have senior people that can be hands on and and do their own work. Um, because like in my industry, so much of like the, the bottom of the pyramid, right. Is it's just something you can buy. Like it's so easy to like buy all the the basic tools that you need that a senior person can really just buy all the stuff from these vendors manipulate that and wield it in a way to make money. Right. And, um, so yeah, in some ways, like the hedge fund industry has kind of cut out the role of middle management. I'm not sure if it's the right thing to do, but that's just the way it is right now.
0: Why might it not be the right thing to do?
1: Well, I think I was talking earlier about like, there's a lot of leverage in the business and anybody, if they come up with a good enough idea can, um, put it on and start making money. Right. But the other, the problem with that is like, you can maybe come up with too many ideas and maybe they're not well structured. And, um, you know, it's just the other side of the coin of like a bureaucracy, right? Like one of the good things about a bigger bureaucracy is it can, um, it can sort of harness vast resources, right? Like, like you clearly need a big bureaucracy to manage like the military or something. Right? Like you can't just have every soldier being like, We got an idea. And like, <laughs> Taking it to the enemy, right? Like you got to have something, something higher level. And I think as companies get bigger, uh, you know, clearly they have some kind of middle management, um, but but I think you know the temptation and the, the the sort of personality of a lot of the people in the business is to like make make your th- strategy and get it to have p l as fast as possible, right? Um, and and that's good if you can do it and you are good at it, but um, you know, there is plenty of people that that shouldn't be doing that that are and could be better used if they were better managed. Right. So, so yeah, I think, um, it's like everybody says what they want is like a bunch of hands on people. And then they realize that they have too many of those and then they, they build a hierarchy. And, right. and, and so businesses have the same cycle, right? Especially entrepreneurial ones. It's like how flat should the organization be? Right. And, and somebody comes in it's like, we're going to flatten it and then they do it and it's chaos. And then they're like, we're going to have better strategy. And then they do it and it's a bureaucracy and, <laughs> <laughs> it's just really management's hard running companies is hard so it's, you know
0: yeah and and just to close out this this career lesson so so just to be explicit one of the things that you're saying is think about having a cycle in your career where you sort of rotate and i for example like i've had managers who were really good managers and then they wanted to go into product and one of the things i've said to them is like well you don't just because you know for me leadership is involves two things one you need to be good at it and one you need to like to do it because if one of if both of those things don't line up it's going to be a rough experience for everyone involved but that doesn't mean you have like you're saying it doesn't you don't have to do it forever right you could go do an ic role for in product and then always like swing back and then run a product team and i think you, you said this in our prep call about it's almost like crop rotation. Uh, yeah, was the
1: metaphor. I, I certainly think it's good for sure. I think um, if you're going to be at some point in your career, like at the pinnacle of your career, if you're going to be like this really senior manager, um, if you left hands on work at year three and just went straight to the clouds, like I don't think I think you've done yourself a disservice, right? I think if you you kind of bounce back to earth, you know, get your hands dirty occasionally, on the way up, um, that you'll, you'll be a better senior manager at at the end.
0: What are some other career lessons you've learned to, at this point in your career?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of people talk about advocating for yourself. I think it's super important, but I think for me, it's like, um, it's, it's the reason it's important is that you have to like kind of have put yourself in the shoes of your manager and just think about the problem that they're trying to solve. Right. And, you know, only the absolute best managers are really thinking about every individual employees um, growth and what their career arc should look like and things like that. Most of them are just fighting a battle and trying to like get their work done and, and, and manage a queue of requests and, you know, um, just kind of do the sort of day to day, keeping the lights on and, and they forget about that. And uh, I think, as an employee, especially as a young person coming out into your career, it's it's really important to to just think to remember that your manager may not be thinking about you very much, <laughs> right? Um, especially if you're kind of good, they might just be like, "Wow, well, this person's you know, there's this there's, there's, there's no problem here, right? Like I don't need to worry about this person." Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's that's the kind of angle that I like to put on on, on advocating for yourself is like just remember that your manager has so much going on that um, they even if they value you, they might not put it high in their queue as high as you want it to be in their queue, like to advance you, to pay you, to to do whatever it is that you need, right? To to feel like your career is going the right way. So I think I think that's one, and um, yeah, and following on this other sort of it's on the same vein. It's just like most people, I would say, uh, don't do very much. That's valuable with their time. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, if you just took someone's day and you just like kind of really scrutinized it, probably like less than half of the time that they spent in, in their job is the stuff that really like moved the business forward and the rest of it could totally just be dropped on the floor and no one would notice or care. Um, and just, uh, you know, I mean, try not to do that, A. Eh? But from, you know, as you come into these, like, big companies and you, it can be very intimidating, uh, I think um, it, you shouldn't be that intimidated. I think if, you know, you, sh- you certainly should respect uh, people's experience, right? But, but you shouldn't think, oh, how am I going to make it, right? Uh, and maybe this is just coming from a small town, like, coming into these big companies and thinking, like, boy, these people – You know, I went to Harvard and I didn't. And so what am I going to do about it? But honestly, if you just, if you just work hard and you have like the majority of your day be productive, you will be far head and shoulders above your peers for the most part is what I find. Um, And if you can hire people that are like that as a manager, uh, then you will be, again, far ahead of your peers.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think the two things together too, if, if you're someone who works hard and then, like you said, takes the time to put themselves in their manager's shoes in terms of what their problems are or how you can make their lives easier. It's and, and then you show some decent amount of ambition. I mean, you're on a rocket ship basically compared to everyone else.
1: You are. And you think like as you know, as you're coming to your career, you think like, wow, the really successful people must be like all have PhDs and work 80 hours a week and all this stuff. And I don't know if I find it to be the case. Like I find that the really successful people are like really disciplined with their time and um, you know, have an opinion, have a view, understand the business um, and, and really care. And like, that's what matters. It's not the, you know, as you get going, it's not so much the credentials and the, and the, you know, give up your whole life for your company you know, like I knew a lot of people on the south side that worked incredible number of hours and did nothing. <laughs> like literally just, you know, they just warmed the seat and, um, and people, you know, that goes, sometimes that works for a while. Like people will be like, wow, this guy stays till eight every night. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's really how the most brilliant managers rose to the top. Right. I mean, they worked as hard as they needed to, for sure. They're not saying you need to be lazy or something, but it's, it's really more about being disciplined and, and deliberate with your, with your time than spending a whole lot of it.
0: Yeah. And a, a couple of things, what's an, what's an example where you've advocated for yourself or brought up something to your manager that was important to you, but maybe he or she didn't know.
1: It's, you know, obviously there's the big things like, you know, Hey, I want this role. Right. Um, and I, I think that's, that's pretty easy for, uh, those, those are the harder conversations to have for sure. Right. Cause you just, you fear rejection and you don't know if it's going to work out. You know, I think, I think people should, should advocate for compensation as well. You know, I think, um, you know, your your manager would love to you know have a limited pool of compensation resources and, and, uh, the easiest thing for them to do is just sort of one over end, give everybody a little bit and, and not make any hard decisions. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I was always very frank about what I thought I deserved. Uh, I didn't always get what I wanted, but uh, there was never any confusion, right? Like about what I wanted and, and what would make me happy and what I thought my market value was.
0: And, um, you know, I think how those did, are how really
1: did you, hard did, to have.
0: Yeah. How did you, in those conversations, I mean, how did you, because I think, I think this is really important. I think people get a lot of value out of it. How did you position yourself? I mean, did you just walk in and just be like, this is what I want. I'm sure you did it more thoughtfully than that. Did you bring some kind of accomplishment list or revenue impact or business impact or market research to the table to sort of contextualize why you thought that way or something Yeah. I mean,
1: and it usually wasn't just like one big meeting, right? I think it's something that you need to be doing um, sort of all the time. I mean, not like every week, you know, but, (laughs) you know, every time you have like a good frank discussion with your manager about how things are going, you just want to say like, look, you know, this is maybe like really starting in like the second half of the year, just being like, look, this is where I think things are going in terms of comp, you know, we're having a really good year this year. This is, um, sort of where my mind is at, uh, this is why this is, this is the sort of product that I'm delivering. This is the, you know, the, the value and the risk that I take off the company by being here. Right. And, you know, and not just me, you know, like, I think I was always talking about my team. Like, look, this is my team. Like, this is the market rate for these people. This person's below market, below market, below market. I could get rid of this person. You know, like I like to have those conversations, um, you know, starting around June uh, and, and, and sort of make it. Cause like the last thing you want to do is like once the sort of bonus budget comes out and be like, okay, now let's talk about my team, right? Like you want to get in there early because you can actually even affect the budget in some, in a large company setting, right? Like if your manager is a good manager, then they can take that up to the higher levels and be like, Hey, you know, my whole team, we got to start thinking about how we're going to pay this team if we're going to want to keep it. So, so yeah, I think it's something that you need to be doing earlier. It's not just at your annual review, here's what I should be paid. I think it's, you need to get ahead of it. And, um, You know, you just need it to be something that's present in your manager's mind. Like, hey, this person's making 20% less than they should be, right? And you might not get it, but you're definitely not going to get it or you're unlikely to get it (laughs) if that's not in their mind, right? So I think most people wait to their annual review to talk about comp. And those people probably don't have very much success getting what they want.
0: This is a really big point, Ben. And it's something I learned the hard way super early in my career. I had that (laughs) conversation after an annual review, after I got my compensation. And my manager, who it was one of those situations, I don't know if you've ever been in this, but tech companies I've worked at, we like rework all the time. So sometimes you'll have two managers in a year or something. So it was this like seat of the pants manager situation. And the guy was like, I'm sorry, like there's nothing it's just it's you're on your heels in that situation so i just want to really know what you're saying because i've been on the wrong side of that and learned it the hard way but it's a it's a really important lesson because your manager wants to help you and you're really helping if again if you're good you know and you're sort of doing high value impact tasks for your company they're gonna want to do what they can but they can't help what they don't know either outside of like you said being a good manager just kind of like looking at comp bands and where people are and stuff, but you're helping
1: yourself say, look, I want to get to this level, you know, what do I need to do? Right. And so in my case, it was like, Hey, you need to be visible to these people. You know, this is a bit of a corporate kind of, you know, intrigue stuff, but I think it's a lot of people work for big companies and this stuff matters. Like you got to find the right people to, to demonstrate your value to them. Right. Um, and, uh, and in my company, It was always, you know, you need to be in front of clients. You need to have clients that value you. You need to be mentioned by clients to managers. Like, but that kind of stuff. Um, So it wasn't just about like, here's what I want. It was also like, hey, if I want to get to this level, like, you know, what kind of behaviors and what kind of um, work do I need to do?
0: There's something you've you've incorporated in this. And I just want to make sure it's clear for folks. When you talked about doing high impact work and other people who work a ton of hours and have very little impact. You actually call that embracing procrastination. Can you, can you sort of educate us on that?
1: Sure. I think this is something I sort of learned from uh, Nassim Taleb, but, um, yeah, I mean, procrastination is, um, is, is not as bad as you think. Like people just think like it's universally bad to procrastinate, but, um, the reason so many people want to procrastinate is you just think like this isn't going to do anything for me. And of course, when it comes to like folding your laundry, I mean, that's, you know, this is not, there's no honor in that. Um, but but I think, you know, as, as a modern employee, you're presented with email and Slack and Teams and whatever all day long. People always want you to do something for them. I don't know. I mean, my approach is I I ignore a lot of things. I just, you know, I I have my own agenda. I want to make sure I accomplish my agenda. Now I I have, that's a bit of a privilege because I'm a senior guy at this point and I can do that, but um, I I don't let other people control my time unless they're, you know, my boss or my client. Right. Um, So uh, and even then, right. It's like, you know, I, I look at a task and I say, hey, if I spent my whole year doing stuff like that, you know, am I going to have a good year at the end of the year? Right. And I think um, so. Yeah. And a lot of times if you procrastinate low value things, they'll just go away like they really will, because if they're truly low value, then, you know, in a month from now, people will be like, what do we even want to bother with that? You know, um, so it's a tough judgment. Like you also don't want to be someone who is just not reliable. I think it's a harder thing to do as a junior person. Um, But, you know, I think if you're really rigorous about it um, and say, hey, if I spent my whole year, you know, preparing this PowerPoint and that was my end work product, would I be proud of my year? If the answer is no, forget it. It's kind of like, I haven't done this much of this in 2020, but like um, if you, you shouldn't read things that you wouldn't read in 10 years. So that means like, in my opinion, you shouldn't waste your time reading the newspaper or um, the newest sort of f- piece of fiction or or, or the newest um, business book or whatever. Like if you saw that book in 10 years and you would it hold up, and if it would hold up, go for it, but if you don't think it would hold up, then why would you read it now? Like what's the difference, you know? And I think it's kind of like that with tasks. It's like, you know, am I going to reflect and be like, oh, I'm really glad I did that? If not, just skip it and see what happens. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, ma- middle managers everywhere are groaning their employees would would follow this advice, but really, like, um, there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, wasted time in business. And um, you know, I think especially once you have family, like, you really need to to just be vicious about prioritization. So.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I definitely appreciate your point around levels. Like for me, for example, tactically, I don't get Slack notifications at work because I or I don't I don't get uh, email pings when an email comes in. I just don't know how you can be productive or do deep work for me when when those things are happening. And ideally, I check those things way more than I already should anyway, let alone getting a ping or a, an alert every time it comes in. So for me, those are just two small packs that I do. And I actually encourage my ju- my junior team members to, to do the same, but it's, it's hard because you feel that pull. And then I think as you get more senior and the work you do tends to be more longer term or strategic, you know, you don't get that like you might make a decision now and not know if it's a good one for 12 months. And, and there's a lot of work that goes into projects. I think when you get more senior that take more focus and, and time, do you, do
1: yeah. You know I mean, actually there's a computer science concepts. Um, it, it's called a, uh, it's a scheduling mistake. So, you know, one of the things that your computer does is it schedules tasks like your processor this is an oversimplification, but it can really only do one thing at a time. It's it's very fast. So, but you know, it has to pick which thing to do. And there's a scheduling called shortest job first. Um, it's one of the things you learn in computer science that sounds intuitive. Like you just do the shortest job first. The problem is there's always an infinite supply of short jobs to do, and it will starve larger tasks. Mm -hmm. And so like most, um, you know, like operating systems, no operating system uses shortest job first to schedule tasks for the processor. It's just not the most efficient way to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure you should use the CPU scheduling algorithm because it's probably like un, like, completely arcane and, under, and impossible to understand for most people. But I think you should take something from that. Like, especially as a senior person, like most of the work you do that has value can't be done in an hour, but there's so many things that people want you to do that can be done in an hour. And then, <laughs> if you do all of them, you'll never get to the what matters. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta pick your own time. Also like just little things. Like when you get up in the morning, the first thing you should do is something productive. Like when you sit down at your desk, you should not go through your email or read the news. Like you should sit down and like finish the program you're working on or finish the letter you're working on or finish whatever, like something that's hard to do. Cause that's the best brain you're going to have all day. And then, you know, at four, start checking your email and doing all the, the things. So it's very tempting because it's like, you know, you start your day, you get a coffee, you read the newspaper, but I, I think you should skip that, get a coffee and write a program. <laughs> so
0: yeah. And doing. even, even, uh, for someone like me who isn't, you know, developing software all day, I still try to block off the first 90 minutes of my day, throw on some headphones and just crank on my most important task of the day. And it's execution is like eight probably 80%, but sometimes I get off course and and stuff like that. So, you know, just, just to kind of summarize, like you're essentially, you know, you've managed people, you were a systems engineer, you were a software consultant, you're the head of algorithmic trading, and now you're at this hedge fund startup. Uh, And you've also been a leader. And one of the things I know you've mentioned is how you enjoy building and developing junior teams. Why is that? And what are some of the things that you found to build an effective team from the ground? Up? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I love, um, teaching. Like, I think, uh, I honestly, hopefully, you know, if I can retire and, and still have some wits about me, I'd love to, uh, Uh, this is uh, people uh, pick on me, but I just, I'd like to just be like a high school math teacher. (laughs) I I hope that could be my retirement or physics teacher. Um, so, uh, so I love teaching. I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed with the quality of the 22 year olds that come out of college now. I think, Mm -hmm. You know, it's so easy to like pick on them or whatever, but they're just so smart and, and, and so eager. And uh, so I, I I see a lot of promise in, in youth. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think um, I've had a lot of luck with internship programs and hiring people from internship programs. I think it's a great way to build your team if you have time, especially at a big company, um, rather than trying to bring in expensive uh, hires externally, you can build them into your culture. Um, you can, you know, really build like a, a, a great relationship with them, you know, because you basically help them get on their feet in the business. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been like my team, uh, you know, I probably hired over my, the course of my career at ATG in 12 years, I probably hired like 15 people from internship programs. Right. And, Took them and, you know, trained them. And some of them ended up being like, you know, pretty senior people at my firm and others. Um, so I enjoy it. I think, um, you know, I don't even mind when people leave. Like I've, I've taken a lot of people and trained them to the point where they were so valuable that I, I didn't have a good enough job for them anymore. <laughs> and they went and worked at a hedge fund or something else. Um, and that's great. You know, I don't, I don't mind that. I don't like when people leave and do something stupid with their career. Um, <laughs> it happens sometimes, like some people just have like a bad bonus and then they like find a horrible job and just take it. Um, don't do that. But, um, yeah, I think it's, um, for me, it's, it's a great way to build a culture. Uh, and it's a more reliable way to get good quality employees over time because you, you have, instead of an interview, right. You have, they work for you for like a summer you really know if someone's gonna be a good employee if they work for you for a summer, right? Like I, I never had like a surprisingly bad intern hire. <laughs> like it's just, it doesn't happen because you have a, you have like a multi-month preview, right? So uh, it's like the most reliable way to build like a high quality team, but it's very, very slow. So obviously it doesn't work in a high growth company, but if you're working in a large corporation, like that's how you should build your team in my opinion.
0: I agree. I, I would say when I had to scale a team from for the 20, I I hired a bunch of junior people. I almost got – I got feedback once that I didn't – I had too many junior people. It was like, can we get some senior people in here to handle some of these more senior relationships at our clients? But I also think they really care about one another. Like, it's a lot easier. There's, like, a hungriness there. And I agree. They're so smart and motivated and hardworking that I think – based on it sounds like our experiences and sort of the rap that many millennials get in the news is it's not the experience I've had.
1: Yeah. Their Twitter accounts might be terrible, but I just don't read those.
0: So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they don't, you know, they don't want me following them on Instagram anyway. Yeah. So Ben, I wanted to shift to something that you brought up, which was reading and, and books. Uh, so sort of, you were talking about the 10 year, rule, which I think is really cool. I know you're a voracious reader. We've had a lot of conversations around fiction versus nonfiction. I know you're big into sci-fi, but how has reading influenced your career slash is it a good habit for you to do every day?
1: Uh, I mean, I certainly think it is. Um, I, I think it's, for me, it's good for number one, just daily mental health. I think I sleep better if I read for a little while. I, um, it's like the only easy thing that I can do, right, that will really erase the stress of the day. You know, I'm a terrible exerciser, but uh, <laughs> reading is very easy for me. I can just pick up a book and read for half an hour and before I fall asleep. And uh, I feel much cleaner. Like my brain feels much cleaner. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's incredibly valuable. I I prefer to read fiction. I think, um, you know, I think most, not all, but like most nonfiction books are way longer than they need to be. Like most of them, like I listen to a lot of podcasts and I think I get everything I need out of like a Malcolm Gladwell book from listening to him on a podcast because most of these ideas just aren't that big. They don't deserve to be 200 page books, but they have to be that big in order to be sold as a hardcover for twenty four ninety nine, or as a Kindle or whatever. Like most of these ideas I think could be a five page blog post. So yeah, I just find that I, I think there are good ideas out there to be had, but I, I much, I prefer to get them via podcasts while I wash the dishes and while I walk the dog. Right. Cause I can't really read them. I don't like audiobooks. I tried it. It didn't work for me. Um, but listening to podcasts is great. And I think fiction is also just good for your, I think it makes you less sort of naive, like just getting into the brains of hundreds of people, you know, in a given year, if you read enough books, you can really like, you know, even if you just get into like the primary character, but like a really good book, you can really get into the point of view of a bunch of different people and different experiences and different, um, you know, you can be in the point of view of someone who's super elite, everything hands to them, you can be in the point of view of a homeless person. Like you can really live like a thousand lives if you read a lot of fiction. So I find it very helpful to um, just for, for me to become like a nicer person, I think. Um, <laughs> reading is, has been super helpful uh, to, to understand how, how lucky I am in a way and also just how hard some people have it. So, um, so yeah, I, I find it um, to be one of the, the best positive habits that I have. Uh, hopefully I can, uh, keep it going, but it's also very cheap and, and easy. It's like, I always get frustrated if I try to like download shows to watch on an airplane and then, you know, I, they don't download or they, you know, like they okay. need you to like check the license in a certain amount of time. If I haven't opened like Netflix and books just don't do that. You just open your book and just, it just works every time. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I don't know. I think it's uh it's a great way to pass time, it's a great way to calm your brain down, and I think it makes you a better person. So what what, what else can do that, you know?
0: Yeah, and I mean even if you read a book and get one idea from it, it's super worth it.
1: Yeah, worth you can you could be a worldly person just through reading, right? Like you don't have to be like someone who, you know, uh went to Harvard Business School and networked with people like that and has, you know, been to Every large city in Europe. I mean, that stuff certainly helps. You know, that that will make you a worldly person too. But you could be a worldly person on a budget by reading really high quality fiction. In my opinion,
0: it's funny you talk about nonfiction being too long because because even my favorite leadership book that I recommend and it's sort of required reading for managers on my team, I always preface it by saying it's a hundred pages too long. It's really good though. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, because again, like the publishers, like, you need to be this long in order for me to call it a book and not like a, you know, like a short story or whatever. It's it's silly. It's just the way the business is. But, um, but, uh, so yeah, I don't know. But like, you know, I do think that like I've read 1,500 page
0: fiction books that were too short. (laughs) When I ended up, I was like, (laughs) no. (laughs) So, So, Ben, I want to leverage your career experience in the financial services world and and try to explain to myself and the audience what's going on in the markets right now and what are you, you know how would you because I think a lot of people like yourself would say the markets are always rational uh, but sometimes I look at what the markets are doing based on what's happening in the world and I realize that the markets are generally a reflection of the future not the present but I'd love if you could maybe make sense of what happened in the markets last year and and what you see happening this year and just generally you know for the layman break it down what 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 are the top 3 to 5 things that someone yeah. might want to know or your interpretation of what's going on
1: I will do my best it's obviously a a, a tough topic and uh, I have a lot of humility about the markets when I when I, when I to me when I say the markets are rational what I really mean is they're more rational than me. Um, (laughs) It doesn't mean that they're perfectly rational, but I don't, I don't think, I think uh, anybody who um, I call this value investor brain, anybody who's like, oh, this is so overpriced. Like that's not a great way to make money in my opinion. Um, So what happened in the markets is, you know, they crashed um, and then they sharply recovered. And um, you know, I think in retrospect, it, it was it was correct and uh you know i i i was pretty bullish uh, throughout this whole thing even though the virus was much worse than i thought so uh, to me i think when it comes to the overall market not just individual stocks i don't know about individual stocks but overall market um you know i think what really matters is just nominal gdp growth and um and that is mainly controlled by the Fed, and you know I think the Fed stepped in and was incredibly aggressive with this cycle, and uh, appropriately so. And they, with along with the government, um, provided the the stimulus to, to create to keep demand high in this in this supply shock, and uh, so yeah, I think that's really it to me. Is if you Look at most of the major crashes, almost all of them are from Fed mistakes. In other words, tightening too much. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is that like doing nothing is tightening if the market if if demand is falling rapidly. So what that means is like if demand is falling rapidly and the Fed does nothing, that's tightening, right? So to me, you have to think about like what's the natural level of, of interest rates and if the Fed is like letting their policy rate stay above the natural level. That means they're tightening, right? So, in you know, I, I blame the financial crisis on the Fed. I think that you know they were worried about inflation because oil prices were high. Sorry, you, about,
0: you're, you're referring to the, to the 2008, yes. Crisis.
1: And I think they were talking about how inflation was too high. Like as Lehman Brothers was failing, right? It was clear that what needed to happen was was you know we needed to stimulate demand. Demand collapsed in the economy, and they were. They didn't really, you know, they never really got to their inflation level. So, so yeah, we had a very slow recovery. It was a long bull market, but it was nothing like this one. This one was much sharper, much faster. Um, and I think cause the fed did a much, much, much better job. And I think anybody who thought the end of the world was happening, um, that, that might have been true for restaurants and things like that. But the other thing you have to remember is the stock market is even the smallest publicly listed company is bigger than your local bar, right? Right. You can't short bars very easily. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think a lot of people, um, missed a great opportunity to, to buy at the bottom of this thing, um, and sold down there. And I, I hope most people didn't, I, I, I think most honestly investors learned their lesson after 2008 and just kind of looked away from their assets and just let it ride. But, um, yeah. yeah, so that's, in general, when it comes to the market, I would say, like, you know, why has the market been up this last few months? Inflation's expectations have been increasing. So again, like the Fed is doing their job. They're they're getting closer to their 2% inflation target. And uh, I think Jerome Powell's been incredible. I think he's probably the best Fed chair ever.
0: Is it a fair critique of the Fed, though, to say that, or it seems like their lever to pull every time now is to just print money? Well, yeah,
1: I mean... That's what they should do um, <laughs> because what, what haven't ha- hasn't happened in a while is runaway inflation, right? I mean, you know, we haven't had inflation north of 2%. Um, Why is 2% an important Well, because that's what their stated target is, right? So if they're not meeting their target, then that means they're, they're being too tight in a way, right? Like one of the things the Fed should do is set expectations and meet them. And if they don't meet them, then that people think that they're not serious about their target and they don't know, like maybe they're going to let it go to zero. Right. And then you start to have people's expectations about the future get dimmer and they don't invest as much. Um, contracts become scarier. Like one of the, to me like the main reason we need the Fed is because we have all these contracts that are in nominal terms. Like you're going to pay $25 in the future. Right. And then your wages you know, are sticky. People don't want to take lower wages So what happens is if there's a bad economy, people just get fired, right? People prefer getting zero to a pay cut, which is weird, but it's true. And, uh, and then they have these contracts that they can't pay anymore and it's a downward spiral. And so the best way to manage that is just to print money because I mean, it's like, I think people worry about like, again, this is value investor brain. They worry about like, is it fair that they print money? But like, if you have an economy that's underperforming, like if we have, trees and we're not turning them into houses because of psychological effects or because because of some sort of like manly you know we need to work this off like that that's not good right like you know like we should do, take do the you trees have, turn them into
0: houses like so yeah what's the do problem you, if the dollar gets weaker who cares do you have any concerns with is there a potential precedent here in terms of your point around millions of people losing their jobs and then the Fed just printing money as if jobs were never lost. Is that, is that something that worries you with, or do you, do you have any opinions on, um, what is it called? Universal basic income or something like yeah. that? Yeah, Well,
1: I think there could be better ways for the Fed to print money. I mean, right now what they do is they just buy treasuries and then like through this long chain of like interactions that money gets to the people and it does work, but like, you know, they could also just, give zero interest loans to regular people or something. It'd just be a lot harder, right? It's very easy for them to buy like a trillion dollars of treasuries because they're right there in the markets liquid. They can just do it. Right. You know, it's much harder for them to like find people and give them money. But in general, I would say that I'm in favor of universal basic income, but I would, I would, this is more into politics. I just, I would prefer to have that rather than this giant complicated bureaucracy that distributes money to people. I'd rather just give them the money directly instead of like, having five people get paid to give them the money (laughs) Mm -hmm. like social security is a pretty successful program, you know, I don't give it to everybody. Um, but I don't know that it's necessary. Like, I think as long as we keep, as long as the fed does a good job and we, um, and we keep the nominal GDP growing, then people will just get jobs. You know, we found during Trump's presidency is that the economy was underperforming before, before, like basically, you know, inflation was low, it wasn't growing very fast. We had a huge deficit. We printed a bunch of money and nothing bad happened. Like everybody had jobs. It was great. You know, I want to have that again. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. Like people think it's like, I don't know. Like people think it's like your own budget. Right. But it's not like, like this money isn't real. Like it's just, it's just getting people to do stuff. Right. And if printing more of it can get people to do more stuff. Great.
0: And you don't have, it's, it's funny. I read a biography on george herbert walker bush last year and when he was running for re-election the deficit was everything at that point in the 90s and he got crushed that is not the ca- it, it. that's not the case anymore it doesn't seem like anyone worries about the deficit or certainly not the way they that it was a talking point in the 90s why why is that and and you know you have two young girls i have two young kids like why won't that a, you know multi-trillion dollar deficit be an issue for them or well a- it'll be an even bigger issue if we don't print money and keep
1: the economy growing <laughs> And eventually by the way, at some point you can destroy money the Fed can do this too but they haven't been able to do it for so long because growth has been so low so if we if Biden's president this this could happen in Biden's presidency you know if he ends up you know creating huge federal programs and spending huge amounts of money at the federal level, to the point where we actually see inflation, then what the Fed will do is it'll it'll sell treasuries. And when the Fed sells treasuries, that's actually shredding money, right? Because when they get the money in their bank account, it just it disappears. It's, it, they're, so it's the opposite of printing money, right? It's shredding money. So they have the ability to do that too, right? Every time they um every time they let a bond go to maturity, right, that bond just disappeared. Like the when, you know, like the money that the Fed gets just disappears, right? It's gone. So So I think I'm not worried about it. Like I don't think the Fed will let things. uh, My biggest concern is that we don't get growth, and that's the best way to have a bigger deficit, right? If we just have three percent growth instead of two percent growth, there won't be a deficit problem. That one percent difference, by the way, you know, like if you take one, if you take two percent over twenty years, that's a fifty percent growth, right? If you take three percent over twenty years, you know, that's an eighty percent growth. So if you can get to 3% growth, who cares about the deficit, right? To me, that's more important. And the way you get to 3% growth is by making sure that you stimulate demand enough, in my opinion. So, so yeah, I don't think it's an issue. I think the biggest risk that we have is to have too slow of growth. Um, just a half a point of growth over 20 years is like multiple times the value of the deficit. Right, if you don't have high enough growth. So, so yeah, I'm I'm in favor of the Fed doing what it needs to do and the federal government creating a more efficient supply side. And, um, I don't think it's unreasonable to have high growth. And I actually am pretty bullish on the future. I think we're going to have high growth. So I think 2% is over. I think we've, we're going to have three, 4% growth maybe.
0: All right. Well, you heard it here first career corner with Ben (laughs) Polidor. So, uh, I appreciate all the time you've you've given me. I've just got a couple more questions and we can wrap yeah, sure. down here. How have you personally adjusted to COVID and and working remote?
1: I don't know. I guess it's different like I, you know, I probably get like 15 minutes more sleep cuz I don't have to drive to work and I just walk into my office and then it's pretty much the same. Like I've adapted pretty well, you know? I mean, I do miss like Sometimes like I'm working with one of my colleagues and like a screen share and Microsoft Teams and I'm like, God, this would be so much easier if I could just point at your monitor, right? Like, I don't think the technology is perfect yet. You know, like just Teams, why can't you share two desktops at the same time? Give me a break. So so there's little things like that that annoy me, but honestly, like I've adapted pretty well. I think honestly, I probably do more focused time. I get more flow time because like, you know, it's way easier for me to just tell other people that I don't want to be bothered because I can just put my notifications off and say, do not disturb. Whereas in the office, somebody could just walk up and interrupt me. I think it's pros and cons. I mean, obviously, you know, maybe those interruptions are are the times when the best ideas happen, but I'm doubtful. I think best ideas happen in flow time. So, um, so I'm doing okay. I think, um, you know, my kids are in school now. I think it was harder for them when they weren't, uh, I think, you know, being in person, even in these like weird pods that we're doing here is is better for their sort of mental health and development than, than sitting at home on a computer all day. So I'm happy about that. I'm impressed with how schools have been able to stay open. I was nervous about that. Uh, yeah, I think I will probably work from home, you know, a couple days a week for the rest of my career if I can. I think it's great. Um, even if there's no reason to because of the pandemic, I just think... Can get a lot done, can stop wasting time like driving back and forth in traffic on Fridays. Uh, I don't really see any reason to, especially for people who like are going to go to work, drive over there, get to their office, put headphones on all day. Like, just,
0: what's the yeah. point? Like, just stay home. Yeah. <laughs> so. Have you also noticed too? I think kids are kids' age. I, I find them to just be so impressive because they're just so resilient and they just like roll with stuff whereas you know as adults people can get bent out of shape about this or that and and i found that kids are just like yeah school's completely different now but they just roll with it
1: they're incredible yeah i mean i think i think this is you know (laughs) deeply philosophical here but like this is why we have you know, death and kids is because you know, human kids are happy to reinvent themselves into whatever new environment there is. And old people, and old even being like thirty plus, aren't so much. So, you know, I think uh, I like to say death is adaptive. It's it's part of life for a reason, and um, you know, it's it's sad and it's it's very painful, but it's. Uh, You know, and you look at your kids, you realize why, right? Like if, if the environment um, rapidly changes on earth, you're going to want to have a new generation of people so they can learn about that and deal with it. You're not going to want to just try to take the existing people and adapt them because they probably, they might fail. They might have the whole species die out. So I don't know. That's a big idea for a response there. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of what I think of when I look at kids. I'm like, wow, they could just, they could just deal with a totally different world and be fine with it. And you know, I want it to be the way it was.
0: <laughs> right, right. Ben, you, you've shared a lot of great wisdom today. Thank you. What's the one thing you would definitely want someone listening to this podcast, whether they're early in their career or late in their career, to walk away with and maybe implement?
1: I would just say, um, this is something we haven't really talked about, but I really feel the clock ticking on my life, and I really feel like, I really want to be sure that I'm spending time doing the things that I want to do. Cause I only get so much time in the world. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, you've got to take out the garbage and whatever, but like, yeah, make sure you're you're really intentional with your career and your time. If you have the privilege to be able to do that. Right. Um, don't, don't waste your life on something you don't like, you know, I hope I'm not, I hope I, I'm pretty happy with what I do. But, uh, every time I do a task, that I don't like or I spend a week on something that um isn't getting me where I want to go like I really feel the time now right uh, as I've gotten older and uh you're not going to feel it when you're 22 so you know spend that time wisely so that you can when you get older and you have less flexibility that you um you've given yourself enough options to find the career that you want and uh I find that very motivating um and that's, you know, the thing that, that older me would like to say to younger me, right? Like don't slack off in college, like do work hard and get that stuff, um, really, you know, invest in yourself so that when you get older in your career, you can, you can have control over it, you know? Um, and I think that having control over your career and your life is, is, you know, probably the most valuable thing you can you can do for yourself right it enables all the other things that you love family hobbies
0: whatever so ben if if someone wants to reach out to you and learn more about you or maybe even connect what's what's the best place <laughs> for that? Uh i don't really
1: have an online presence um so there's no twitter to follow or anything like that uh you're welcome to email me at uh polidor at gmail.com and uh that would be fun if someone did, but, um, but yeah, I don't really do, uh, social media or anything like that in my line of work. It's not really, it's not, it's really frowned upon. So, so yeah, I'm a bit of an online cipher. Um,
0: <laughs> well, I, I was going to say I can link to your LinkedIn page, which by the way, I mean, this, can we talk about this new profile picture? Did you coordinate the blue sort of design oh, yeah. well. to accentuate your blue eyes more? Cause this is, I mean, this is a heck of a picture, man.
1: Hey, you know what? This is a professional headshot taken, uh, it really at, at my last job. So, um, I'm yeah, I unfortunately I don't look as good as that anymore. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll leave that up going for through 20. A
0: pandemic. Years. Yeah, but yeah, man, your blue eyes are just popping there, man. <laughs> there might have been some Photoshop, I don't know. Would that like um, and have like laser? in the back (laughs) there's some itg
1: infographics behind me that's what that was yeah
0: ben uh thanks so much man it's good to see you uh miss you and and Kristen. please say hi to her for me and uh we'll talk again soon hopefully all right man that was a great time thanks a lot all right i hope you enjoyed my conversation with ben polidor if you're enjoying career corner i'd be grateful if you would leave a five-star rating and or review it will definitely help us attract more listeners Or at a minimum, please just share with a friend. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. Bye-bye.